I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Inflammation is how the immune system fights infection. What happens when it gets out of control? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Hidden inflammation that has become chronic lies at the root of many of our most challenging conditions. Autoimmune diseases, metabolic disorders, and even cardiovascular problems all have an inflammatory component. How does our diet affect inflammation? Could the foods we love be contributing to disruption in our digestive tracts? Our intestinal microbes are constantly interacting with our immune system. What can we do to help calm the inflammation that may be causing us harm? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, A Silent Fire, The Story of Inflammation. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, no one is surprised that scientists found evidence of SARS-CoV-2 in the bodies of people who died of COVID-19. The SARS-CoV-2 virus is known as the cause of covid What has surprised researchers is the wide extent of viral RNA and even viable virus. Investigators at the National Institutes of Health conducted autopsies on 44 COVID-19 victims. One-fourth of the autopsies specifically analyzed brain and spinal cord tissue for evidence of the virus. The researchers found virus, or viral RNA, throughout the bodies. There was evidence of destruction in respiratory tissues, but remains of the virus were present in many other organs, including the brain. One person died 230 days after first experiencing symptoms. Despite that long lapse, viral RNA was widespread in the body. The scientists concluded, Our data indicate that in some patients, SARS-CoV-2 can cause systemic infection and persist in the body for months. A preprint posted at MedArchive in October reached a similar conclusion. The Japanese researchers reported that they found high levels of infectious SARS-CoV-2 in more than half of the 11 autopsy cases they examined. A different group of scientists also offer alarming conclusions from their separate study of autopsies. Harvard researchers examined the brains of 54 individuals who had died of COVID-19 and compared them to the brains of uninfected people who died from other causes. The investigators used a technique called RNA sequencing to discover the pattern of genes activated or suppressed by the infection. What they found is that COVID-19 infection produces gene signatures in the brain that resemble those of patients with Alzheimer's disease. As a result, the brains of people with COVID appear to have experienced accelerated aging. Perhaps these findings explain why so many people complain of brain fog after recovering from the coronavirus. The scientists emphasize the importance of neurological follow-up for people recovering from COVID-19 infections. A new study published in the New England Journal of Medicine describes the results of an 18-month clinical trial of a drug for Alzheimer's disease. Lecanemab is a monoclonal antibody that binds to beta-amyloid fragments in the brain. 
Like its cousin, aducanumab, the drug reduces the level of amyloid plaque in the brains of patients with early Alzheimer's disease. Nearly 1,800 patients were randomized to receive either lecanemab or placebo. At the end of the study, people getting the drug had not declined quite as much as those on placebo. That doesn't mean the drug actually reversed their dementia, but it did slow the progression modestly. Some people experienced serious adverse reactions, including brain inflammation. There were three deaths associated with the drug. A preliminary study posted as a preprint on MedArchive compared ivermectin, fluvoxamine, and metformin in the treatment of COVID-19. There were over 1,100 patients randomized to one of these three drugs, or placebo, within three days of a confirmed COVID diagnosis. There was a 42% relative risk reduction for long COVID among those patients taking the diabetes drug metformin for two weeks during their illness. None of the other drugs reduced the likelihood of long COVID. At least three companies producing the ACE inhibitor blood pressure drug Quinipril have recalled their products due to nitrosamine contamination. The most recent recall was from Lupin Pharmaceuticals. Nitrosamines are suspected carcinogens that have been detected in a number of other blood pressure medications previously. The brand name manufacturer Pfizer recalled its version of Quinipril, Acupril, earlier this year. It had detected N-nitrosoquinipril in the tablets. That's the same compound that led Lupin to recall its 20 and 40 milligram tablets. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. We think of inflammation as harmful. Stub your toe and it will swell, get red and warm and hurt. That's inflammation. So is an infected hangnail. It's your body's way of defending itself. And short term, it can be helpful. But inflammation can also become a problem over the long term. To help us better understand how inflammation is at the root of so many of our modern chronic diseases, we turn to Dr. Shilpa Ravella. She's a transplant gastroenterologist with expertise in nutrition. Dr. Ravella is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Digestive and Liver Disease at Columbia University Medical Center and author of A Silent Fire. The Story of Inflammation, Diet, and Disease. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Shilpa Ravella. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Ravella, inflammation comes from the Latin. I don't know how to pronounce it. I've forgotten my Latin from uh, eighth grade. Inflammare, to ignite, setting on fire. Why is that such a good description of what's going on inside our bodies. I think it's a great description because inflammation is this ancestral force that really evolved to fight pathogens and poisons and trauma and creates this sort of fever in our bodies in order to be able to deal with those things. And when you think of the cardinal signs of inflammation, you know, you think of redness, heat, swelling, and pain, 
And these signs are a manifestation of what's going on inside of your body that is really uh, trying, trying to address some of those ancient killers. Dr. Avila, as we understand it, inflammation can be useful, helpful, as we're trying to fight off, as you say, some of our body's enemies, but it also can be damaging. Can you explain that balance, please? Absolutely. So as I had mentioned, inflammation evolved to to deal with some of these pathogens, poisons, and traumas. And when you stub your toe, for example, you can see some of that redness, heat, swelling, and pain. And inflammation in this context is, is helpful. It's trying to heal your wound. But there is a biological price that comes with having this robust inflammatory response. And we can see it with conditions like autoimmune diseases, for example, when you think of rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease. These are conditions in which inflammation turns against the body and conditions in which patients suffer because of the inflammatory response. I think it comes as a bit of a surprise to people to learn that inflammation is beneficial. In other words, if if we have a skin infection, let's say a staph infection, the idea that inflammation is somehow helping us heal, or I mean, even think COVID for a minute. I mean, the coronavirus causes an inflammatory reaction. And in fact, it's the overreaction that ultimately can cause death for some people. That was the early report. So can you explain how it is that inflammation is beneficial early in this process? With viral infections in particular, you know, a lot of times our bodies, they start out by trying to fight the infection. So the inflammatory response you know, you have the immune cells that come in and try to fight the germ. But sometimes what can happen, and this can happen if our immune systems are jumpy at baseline, but also maybe if we have a high viral load, the germ is replicating too quickly. Oftentimes, uh, our immune system can mount this unfettered sort of haphazard inflammatory response, what we sometimes call a cytokine storm. And it's this sort of brash and voluminous immune response that can be responsible for a lot of the problems that we see with uh, the folks who have viral illnesses and end up in the intensive care unit and such. So it's really a lot of times our body's own immune response causing a lot of the damage in in some of these illnesses as opposed to the germ itself. It, it, it seems like it's that, you know, our bodies are this incredibly finely tuned organism where We need the inflammation to kill the pathogen, but then we need the immune system to calm down the inflammation to subside so that it doesn't overreact. How does that process work? So, you know, it's sort of like the, the, the three bears in the porridge. You you don't want it too hot. You don't want it too cold. You want it just right. It's, it's finely tuned. Why is it that it sometimes gets out of whack? That's exactly right. We want a finely tuned immune response. And and you you said the perfect thing, which was that we want balance. And when we think of an appropriate immune response, we do think of the immune system in the context of balance. You know, we want an immune response that can come, fight the germ, and go away as needed. And when I say go away, the process of inflammation actually dying down 
is actually not a passive process. That in itself is an active process. And there are so many things going on in the body in order to create this sort of perfect balance. And there is so much externally in our environment that can affect our abilities to have this sort of uh, Goldilocks uh, perfect porridge type of response when it comes to our immune system from from our diet and our lifestyle to the germs in our environment to the germs that are inside of us. So there are many, many things that play a role. But at the end of the day, we do want a balanced inflammatory response. So it's not really about taking away all of the inflammation, but it's about having inflammation in the right context at the appropriate times at the right level and having that inflammation die down as needed when it needs to. Now, your book, A Silent Fire, is really all about chronic invisible inflammation. And you start with a very compelling story about your friend Jay. Can you tell us about what was going on with Jay and why that is such a great illustration of chronic, difficult-to-detect inflammation? Sure. Uh, this was uh, something that had happened to to a very good friend of mine, a, a close friend of mine. And and what happened to Jay was that he was at the gym one day working out, and he came he came to his house with some neck strain. So he had some pain in the back of his neck. And typically, we chalk that up to strain after exercising. And so we thought it would resolve in a couple of days. But what happened afterwards was, you know, the pain hadn't resolved but he started getting even more pain and ended up developing a complete head drop. The average human head weighs about 10 pounds and it's almost effortless. You know, we don't think about how we hold up our head, but it's actually very intricate balance of a variety of muscles. So Jay developed a complete head drop. He started developing other... What what is a head drop? A head drop, uh, the best way I can describe it is when you are unable to lift your head uh, you know, you were unable to lift your chin up. So, so, so your head sort of uh, comes forward down into your chest area and you need to wear a brace in order to keep your head up. And that brace kind of extends to the waist area. So his neck muscles weren't holding his head up. Exactly, exactly. And he started having other symptoms as well. Uh, he started having problems walking, trouble eating. And it was clear that this was not a typical post-workout sensitivity or uh, muscle strain. And eventually, rheumatologists diagnosed him with an atypical autoimmune disease. So this, again, is another biological price of, of inflammation. And for a long time, we actually didn't know what was going on with him until he got that diagnosis. And you know, the inflammation in many ways was, was silent initially and then manifested as loss of function down the line. But a lot of these atypical autoimmune diseases and even typical autoimmune diseases can be debilitating and incredibly devastating for patients. We hear all the time about people who have been suffering not just for weeks or months, but sometimes for years with hard to diagnose conditions just like Jay. I mean, Jay had something really atypical, but there are a lot of people who are basically incapacitated in one way or another because of an autoimmune condition. And we're hearing now about 
not just hundreds of thousands, but millions of people who may be incapacitated after COVID. They're, they're called everything from long hauler syndrome to long COVID to post-acute sequelae of COVID, whatever you want to call it. It's really challenging. Are all of these like some kind of silent inflammation? I think that silent inflammation can certainly play a part. It can be one factor. And we've seen associations between some of the things that happened during this long COVID syndrome with, you know, brain fog and loss of taste and uh, smell and, and other issues. And we're seeing some associations with chronic inflammation and, and some of these, and some of these things. And even in the gastrointestinal world, when you think of functional disorders like irritable bowel syndrome, in which we don't really find any sort of structural abnormalities when we do our endoscopies, but patients end up suffering for a very long time. We, we are finding that there are, there are ties to low-level inflammation in irritable bowel syndrome and diseases like that as well. And, you know, what's, what's tough is that for a lot of these patients, they may have inflammation, silent inflammation, and then their pain and their suffering is also very hidden, uh, which is a very difficult condition to deal with. You're listening to Dr. Shilpa Ravella, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Digestive and Liver Diseases at Columbia University Medical Center. She's a transplant gastroenterologist and author of A Silent Fire, The Story of Inflammation, Diet, and Disease. Her TED-Ed lesson is titled, How the Food You Eat Affects Your Gut. After the break, find out what causes chronic invisible inflammation. How can you tell if you have chronic inflammation? We'll find out about its role in heart disease. Is it possible the anti-inflammatory activity of statins is as important as their cholesterol-lowering effects? We'll also learn how inflammation affects metabolic diseases such as diabetes. Why aren't non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs beneficial against chronic inflammation? How does lingering inflammation affect the digestive tract in conditions like IBS? The immune system is responsible for creating inflammation. How can it also calm things down? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder, providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies, demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code, PEOPLES15. More information at cocovia.com.
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs, focused on purity, potency, and transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today, our topic is inflammation and how it affects so many different body systems. When our digestive tracts become chronically inflamed, the results can be devastating, from irritable bowel syndrome to inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. When hidden inflammation strikes the vascular system, it can cause all sorts of mischief. In the brain, inflammation may be linked to dementia. To learn more about these often hidden conditions, we're talking with Dr. Shilpa Ravella, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Digestive and Liver Diseases at Columbia University Medical Center. She is a transplant gastroenterologist and author of A Silent Fire, The Story of Inflammation, Diet, and Disease. Her TED-Ed lesson is titled, How the Food You Eat Affects Your Gut. Dr. Ravella, we've been talking about chronic inflammation that's essentially invisible, very hard to detect. Do we have any idea what causes it? There are a variety of, of things that can actually trigger chronic inflammation, and one of the biggest factors is is our lifestyle. We've really transformed our environments in the modern age from the food we eat to how we move or lack of exercise, for example, to our relationships with people, the stress levels in our lives. So all of these different dietary and lifestyle factors can actually play a part in triggering chronic inflammation. And even when it comes to things like the air we breathe, you know, for example, pollution and also the products we use, chemicals and some of the products we use. All of these things can play a part. How would we know? How would our doctors know if we were suffering from chronic inflammation? Well, hidden inflammation or silent inflammation is tied to so many different conditions now. We know that it's not involved in just a few select autoimmune disorders, those diseases that we are used to diagnosing. You know, because hidden inflammation can lead to a higher risk of developing an autoimmune disorder, but it can also cause, for example, heart disease, and it is associated with so many other disorders, cancer, diabetes, obesity. So when patients are walking into clinic with with any one of these modern chronic disorders, and I would say that's most of us in this country today, then then they know and, and physicians able to understand that they are in some way silently inflamed. When it comes to testing and treating for hidden inflammation, one of the salient unifying threads that uh, defines this condition is that we are actually not used to routinely testing and treating this force. Well, I'm really glad that you mentioned cardiology because I think the section in your book, A Silent Fire, around heart disease in particular, is just incredible. You really went into it in in great depth. And I think that, I think that a lot of healthcare providers and patients think that, you know, heart disease is a, it's a disease of cholesterol. 
if you just get your cholesterol under control, everything is going to be fine and dandy. I know, just take a statin. That'll do the trick. Can you go back a little bit in the history of heart disease when researchers began to suspect an inflammatory reaction and take us all the way up to to statins and one of the interesting aspects of how they work as anti-inflammatory agents? Sure. Well, one of the interesting things is that half of all heart attacks actually occur in people with normal cholesterol levels. So one of the things that some of the researchers were, were confounded by was, why is this happening? And so that, that sort of triggered another pathway for them to consider in some ways. And the history of, of considering inflammation as a causative factor in heart disease is actually very old. It goes back to at least Rudolf Virchow, who was a 19th century German physician, or even back further than that. And I thought that history was fascinating because, you know, the story of actually coming to being able to say inflammation can cause heart disease, that, that story is very protracted as well, as well as the inflammation that's going on in heart disease for a lot of these patients. And it was just a fascinating story in many ways. And, and cholesterol is an important risk factor when it comes to heart disease. So inflammation doesn't replace cholesterol as a risk factor, but it is indeed an independent risk factor for causation of heart disease. We have large-scale clinical trials now that show that when you control inflammation in patients who have had heart attacks, you can actually decrease their risk of having recurrent heart attacks and strokes. And, and that's a very big thing you know, to, to be able to say that if we deal with this risk factor, which you know, it, at its root, there are dietary and lifestyle factors that can actually alter that, that risk factor. But if we are able to deal with it, we can actually decrease the risk of, of causing cardiovascular events. Well, I, I wonder if you could drill a little deeper, Dr. Ravella, and talk about endothelial injury. I know that's, you know, a little bit of, a, you know, scientific sounding, but can you explain that for our listeners? What, what is that about and why is inflammation so critical in that process? Sure. Well, the endothelium, uh, so these are the little cells that line the inner lining of your blood vessels and what inflammation can do. So endothelial cells can actually be turned into inflammatory powerhouses. They can actually secrete cytokines and, and inflammation, inflammatory cytokines can actually prompt this. So, so inflammation, uh, can have effects on the endothelial cells that, that can actually, uh, cause the progression of, of heart disease. Endothelial cells can fail to make enough uh, nitric oxide, for example, which helps the vessels to relax. And uh, this idea that endothelial cells could can be both inflamed, but also can be inflammatory, you know, turning into their own inflammatory powerhouses was once very heretical in, in a lot of ways. Tell us a little bit about statins as anti-inflammatory drugs. I mean, I think cardiologists have been aware of this for a long time, but they keep focusing on LDL cholesterol. What about the anti-inflammatory activity of statins? Statins uh, actually decrease cholesterol, uh, but they are they do have anti-inflammatory components as well. And with some of the earlier trials, you know, it was hard to tease out how much of the benefit actually came from the cholesterol lowering and how much came came from actually addressing inflammation. You know, uh, there were clinical trials in which 
statins were given to patients with normal cholesterol levels and that actually improved outcomes. But then many cardiologists said, well, maybe our cholesterol thresholds are too lenient. Maybe we need to be aiming for lower cholesterol levels. So we know, you know, that we know today that inflammation is an independent risk factor based on the newest clinical trials, uh, based on deploying anti-inflammatory drugs in, in patients uh, who have, who are silently inflamed, but in which these studies have actually controlled for some of these other factors like high cholesterol levels, diabetes, obesity, and such. Uh, so we know that statins are acting on both pathways and inflammation is actually an independent risk factor that, that we uh, should, should be addressing at some level today. Just to move away from uh, the heart and cardiac issues for a little while anyway, I wonder if you could tell us more about how inflammation is connected with metabolic disease. Well, the immune system and metabolism are actually intricately interwoven. Uh, The immune system is younger and more expensive. Uh, Metabolism sort of emerged with life itself. And when I talk about metabolism, I'm talking about things like converting food into fuel and uh, removing waste. And when you look at immune cells and uh, fat cells, for example, and fat cells are heavily involved in metabolism, these cells derive from uh, the same ancestral cell and, and share many properties. And in obesity, for example, when you have inflammatory visceral fat or uh, the fat that wraps around your abdominal organ, that type of fat can actually function like an immune organ, churning out inflammatory molecules at all hours of the day. Uh, so the connections between immunity, uh, between the immune system and uh, metabolism go far back into our evolutionary history. And a lot of these disorders that are metabolic disorders uh, end up turning out to be in part also inflammatory ones. You are a gastroenterologist as a, as a specialist, and you mentioned irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, which is very different from inflammatory bowel disorders. I wonder if you could first distinguish between the two, because I think a lot of people get confused, but in particular, so many people are impacted by irritable bowel syndrome. How is that affected by inflammation? And what can you, as a gastroenterologist, do to help relieve their symptoms? Because it can be really not not incapacitating the way inflammatory bowel disorder is, but, but it can be very, very difficult to deal with. Absolutely. We have so many people now who are affected by irritable bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel disease as well. And those two conditions sometimes tend to get confused. Inflammatory bowel disorder is an autoimmune condition. Uh, so things like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And we, we deploy anti-inflammatory and immune suppressing drugs in those cases. Irritable bowel syndrome is a functional gastrointestinal disorder. And that's a disorder in which patients come in with a variety of gastrointestinal symptoms. Usually all the testing that we have done is negative. So we don't find any structural abnormalities on our endoscopies for these, for these patients. But these patients come in with, with sometimes pretty severe GI symptoms. And we know such as, uh, such as, uh, abdominal pain, nausea, sometimes diarrhea, constipation, bloating. Uh, bloating is, is a huge problem with 
so many different patients. Uh, and, and we know today, too, that th- there is a component of silent inflammation, intestinal inflammation that is very minuscule, uh, that may be playing a part in this disorder as well. Inflammation in the gut can actually change uh, the way the gut moves, for example, and and cause some gastrointestinal symptoms. For irritable bowel syndrome, we do use a variety of, uh, of therapies. Some of these therapies are medical, and then we also use exclusion diets as well uh, for these patients. And uh, Dr. Ravella, what do you do for patients with irritable bowel syndrome for to to help them with these mysterious symptoms that are causing real uh, distress in their lives, even though the gastroenterologist perhaps hasn't found any reason to explain why they're having such difficulty? Well, it's usually a multidisciplinary approach. So, so in an I, ideal situation, we we also deal with managing, you know, for example, stress in life, and we. And we deal with uh, the lifestyle factors that should be in place, like exercise and diet. And we know that we have exclusion diets now that can help patients with irritable bowel syndrome, such as uh, the low FODMAPs diet. And FODMAPs is kind of a fancy name for certain carbohydrates that are more likely to cause gastrointestinal symptoms in your gut because they sort of pull water into your intestinal tract and they are poorly absorbed. So when IBS patients avoid some of these FODMAPs for for a few weeks, they start to feel better. And we also have medications that can help them control their diarrhea or constipation. And, and those things in concert uh, help, help these patients. We've been talking about how the immune system ramps up inflammation, produces inflammation. But one of the fascinating aspects of A Silent Fire, you describe how the immune system also produces chemicals that will calm inflammation. And I think that's something that we really haven't paid that much attention to. Could you describe that, please? Sure. So when you have acute inflammation in the body, when when you have an injury, for example, to a part of your body and the immune cells go to that area and, and try to address uh, uh, the injury and you have inflammation around the body, you want the inflammation to stay, do its job, and go away. And and this process of resolution of, of inflammation going away actually is is not a passive one. And scientists have found that immune cells switch directions. They switch from secreting inflammatory cytokines and they switch from creating inflammation to helping to resolve it. And uh, uh, macrophages and neutrophils, a couple of our immune cells that we have in acute inflammation and chronic as well. We have macrophages and chronic inflammation, but macrophages and neutrophils produce substances uh, that are called resolvins. And I'll just call them resolvins here instead of specialized pro-resolving mediators, which is kind of the more official umbrella term. But uh, these are substances that, that actually help the inflammation to die down. And, and these are also pathways that have been honed, you know, through the millennia, these revolutionary pathways that have developed over, over time and, and help the body to, to reverse its state of being inflamed. Shortly, we're going to ask you for your recipe, your recommendations about how to calm the immune system. But I think a lot of people think about 
anti-inflammatory drugs as the answer. NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen and naproxen whenever they have a an injury or whenever they have a headache or something else. Why are these drugs not the magic bullets? I think these drugs can certainly help in certain conditions. And and one of the things that I think is tough now is that they are deployed kind of all the time in some ways. And one of the problems with them is that they dampen inflammation. But when you dampen inflammation, that always comes with a price. And most NSAIDs do nothing to foster the resolution of inflammation. So you have this acute lessening of your inflammation, but then you know perhaps that whole process of reversal that we just talked about is is going to suffer a little bit. And then there are other issues too with NSAIDs. You know, if you take high dose NSAIDs, you you may become more predisposed to developing gastrointestinal ulcers, bleeding gastrointestinal ulcers. And I don't want to say that you no know, patient should never use NSAIDs. Absolutely not. I think that they can be helpful in a variety of conditions, but I think we should also deploy them with with caution and and being cognizant of some of these other effects and some of these other more serious conditions that can come with NSAIDs, particularly gastrointestinal bleeding. That certainly sounds like good advice. You're listening to Dr. Shilpa Ravella, author of A Silent Fire, The Story of Inflammation, Diet, and Disease. Dr. Ravella is a transplant gastroenterologist with expertise in nutrition. She's an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Digestive and Liver Diseases at Columbia University Medical Center. After the break, we'll learn the signs and signals that someone has silent inflammation. What tests can be helpful? Our gut microbes are in constant conversation with our immune system cells. Have scientists learned how to eavesdrop on them? What might we learn? How could diet, especially ultra-processed foods, affect inflammation? How does culture affect inflammation through its impact on our favorite foods? What happens if people in different parts of the world switch diets? Does their inflammation profile change? What diet and lifestyle changes should we adopt to minimize our exposure to chronic, invisible inflammation? Why has medicine been so slow to embrace the idea of silent inflammation underlying so many chronic conditions? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, offering its cardio health product with 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols in powder and capsule form. 
More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Because inflammation is not always easy to detect, we may need to ask our health professionals to look for it. What tests are helpful? We're talking with Dr. Shilpa Ravella, author of A Silent Fire, the story of inflammation, diet, and disease. Dr. Ravella is a transplant gastroenterologist with expertise in nutrition. She's an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Digestive and Liver Diseases at Columbia University Medical Center. Dr. Ravella, how would somebody know? What would be the signs and signals that they have a silent inflammatory reaction, whether it's heart disease, whether it's irritable bowel, whether it's an autoimmune condition? Uh, What kinds of tests should they be asking their doctors to perform What kinds of symptoms should they be sensitive to so that they could go to their healthcare provider and say, could I have silent inflammation? Well, one of the tough things with hidden inflammation, one of the unifying threads at present is that we are not used to routinely testing for or or treating this entity. And so when we go into our doctor's offices, typically the first thing we are asked is not are you inflamed? And let's let's get these tests and 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 uh, tests you for inflammation. So unfortunately, um, we we don't have a rigorous process for that at present. But we do have certain tests that we can deploy at times. And one of the things that they can do in some cardiology clinics is they can test for, for example, a molecule called C-reactive protein, and they test for high sensitivity C-reactive protein. C-reactive protein is a molecule that can take a a temperature of how much inflammation is going on in your body. And part of the problem with C-reactive protein, though, and some of the other inflammatory markers that you can theoretically measure is that they tend to be nonspecific. So while they can tell you that there is inflammation ongoing in your body, it's a bit harder to say, where's the inflammation coming from? How long has it been there? Why is it there? So these are some of the questions that we struggle with. That being said, from a research standpoint, scientists do tend to measure these inflammatory markers. And in particular, in heart disease, high sensitivity C-reactive protein has been used. Another indication of inflammation, a sort of test for inflammation that, that anyone can do for themselves is to just take a look at the belly fat that they have. Because the fat around your belly is very different from the fat around, say, the thighs or the upper arms. The fat around the belly is a marker for visceral fat, which wraps around the inner abdominal organs. And visceral fat can wrap around blood vessels as well. And this type of fat is churning out inflammation at all hours of the day, almost functioning like an immune organ. And so, so when one has belly fat, then they know that at some level they are most likely silently inflamed. Another common test that can be a proxy for silent inflammation is uh, testing for high blood sugars. And this is something that is typically done in a primary care office. But because of the intricate ties between the immune system and metabolism and the interplay between obesity, insulin resistance, and inflammation, uh, we know that having high blood sugar 
also a proxy for being silently inflamed as well. So those are some of the tests that we have today, and scientists are still working on on how better to define this state of being silently inflamed and how how we should be testing for it. Uh, Dr. Rivella, in A Silent Fire, you describe an ongoing conversation between the gut microbes and the immune system, a, a great part of which actually surrounds our digestive tract. Why is that so important, and how are scientists studying it? Well, the conversations between our microbes and our immune cells are incredibly important for the development of our immune system. Scientists uh, have studied germ-free mice, and these are mice that have grown up in sterile bubbles with sterile food and water, and they have been delivered by C-section. And these mice actually end up with a variety of deformities, like a shrunken heart and lungs, brain defects, and they have immune systems that are incredibly jumpy and maladjusted and ready to deploy inflammation uh, in the ways that it should not be deployed. And so these conversations that are going on between microbes and immune cells are very important for not only shaping the immune system, but they're shaped by the immune system as well. And particularly in our first few years of life, it's very important to be exposed to the appropriate quality and quantity of germs in order for our immune systems to develop appropriately. I'd like to focus for a moment on diet, because if you go to a supermarket these days, there is a lot of highly processed food. We might even call it ultra-processed food. And I'm wondering the impact of that food on our digestive tracts, and in particular on inflammation, and why diet in general is so critical to what you're talking about in A Silent Fire and and this notion of mangiafolia, whatever the heck that means, and, and traditional diets. So please contrast what we're mostly eating today as Americans and what we used to eat 100 or 200 years ago. Sure. Uh, and mangiafolia, that's a term for to eat leaves, uh, Italian term to eat leaves. And and I think that term is very telling in, in that our diets have just altered so much throughout the ages. And particularly with the advent of processed foods, I think processed foods are probably one of the most insidious foods that we can consume because some of those foods, uh, you know, they are made from whole food derivatives. They have so many different additives and extracts and some of those, some of those uh, components we, we are still trying to understand how those components are influencing our bodies and also the germs within our gut. One of uh, the most important things I think that we are not doing today, one of our most important anti-inflammatory nutrients that we are not consuming is, is fiber. And the majority of Americans today have a fiber deficiency. We, we know that for men and women, you know, there are certain RDAs for how much fiber we, sh we should be taking in. And 95% of Americans don't meet the RDAs. And fiber is one of our most anti-inflammatory nutrients. It actually manipulates both the innate and the adaptive immune system. It manipulates all arms of the immune system. And it is a critical nutrient for the germs in our gut because our gut germs metabolize fiber and they create wonderful components like short-chain fatty acids, which nourish the intestinal barrier and which have effects upon inflammation, not only within the gut, but throughout the body. 
So we need to not only meet the RDAs today, but go way beyond them in terms of our fiber intake. And 95% of us are not doing that. And so we are missing out on this critical nutrient. And then on top of that, we have this addition of a variety of processed foods. Uh, so we tend to shop more in the central aisles of a grocery store than we ever did in the past. And when we think about, say, an anti-inflammatory diet, like the traditional Mediterranean diet uh, that was eaten in rural Naples in the 1950s, that type of diet, that pattern of eating is present in so many different traditional cultures, from the Okinawans uh, to you know parts of uh, South Asia and so many other places in the world where um, you know, folks eat in, in similar ways. Can you give us some ideas of what type of foods we would be eating if we were trying to follow a more traditional style diet? If we're trying to increase our fiber, I assume we need to go beyond bran flakes for breakfast. Yeah, I think the the best thing to do is to really focus on minimally processed whole plant foods. So lots and lots of fruits and vegetables and also the diversity of the food is very important. So when we walk into the grocery store, we're not just buying the bananas and the iceberg lettuce, but we're also looking at all kinds of berries. We're looking at those greens, you know, very, very uh, dark uh, vegetables, purple, red, brown, red, and and those vibrant colors. And we know uh, foods like that are packed with very important nutrients like polyphenols, uh, which are which are highly anti-inflammatory. We haven't identified a polyphenol deficiency, but you know um, we, we want to eat those foods with with uh, tons of polyphenols in them uh, from an anti-inflammatory standpoint. So we want to select the right foods as well, and and to select a variety of foods. Now. In A Silent Fire, you describe a fascinating experiment in which scientists had people from South Africa and people from Pittsburgh swap diets for two weeks. So that's very short term. What happened? Well, uh, so they, they found that when they gave folks who had been eating corn porridge uh, and, and whole plant foods, minimally processed whole plant, plant foods, the traditional uh, South African diet, when they when they gave those patients the typical Western diet, which um, was filled with things like uh, deli meats and hot dogs, you know, lots of modern meat, lots of dairy, fat, etc. They, they found changes in the gut microbiome. They found that the microbiome became less diverse, less beneficial metabolites, more adverse metabolites, and the opposite happened in the patients who went from the typical Western diet to the traditional diet. So these are folks who had been eating the Western diet and then and then started eating the corn porridge and fruits and vegetables. And their microbiomes became more diverse and you know they had more beneficial metabolites, more short chain fatty acids. And this is just a two week experiment. And obviously, you know, uh, one should continue a, a diet filled with minimally processed whole plant foods for longer than two weeks. And and uh, two weeks is kind of a, a snapshot, but it, it is very telling that we, we can actually see these changes in the microbiome in, in that this amount of time. Dr. Ravella, I'd like to change gears a bit and talk about exercise. You mentioned that exercise can be anti-inflammatory, but that too much exercise can actually be a problem. So thread the needle, please. 
Sure. Uh, exercise is highly anti-inflammatory in so many ways. It can melt that visceral fat that I was talking about, uh, which, which turns out inflammatory molecules. Regular exercise uh, has been shown in clinical trials across the board, across age groups, to be incredibly anti-inflammatory. Uh, one of the problems that can occur, you know, one, if one is not used to exercising and all of a sudden uh, goes out and tries to do too much, that can be a little hard on the body. In exercise, we do need inflammation as we need inflammation to fight germs. And in fact, it's how we build muscle with strength training, for example, our bodies have micro tears, inflammation comes, does its job, repairs the wound, and then you get regeneration and new growth. So we need inflammation in exercise, but we also, as we, as we need it, we also need for it to go away appropriately. And part of the problem with, with over-exercise, and sometimes this can, this can be a problem with endurance running and, and, and such, part of the problem is that we don't allow our bodies enough time to rest. And, and, uh, with this over-exercise, we can, we can find that this can paradoxically create a state of hidden inflammation, chronic inflammation. Dr. Rivella, we're nearly out of time. What diet and lifestyle changes should we all adopt in order to minimize the amount of chronic inflammation that we experience? I would say there are so many different different things I can I can uh, say, so many different ways in which I can answer that, that question. But one of the most important things, uh, I think, is to follow a diet that is filled with minimally processed whole plant foods, no matter what you call the diet, you know, the labels don't actually matter. But what matters is that you fill your plate with those types of foods and also try to stress your body in some way every day with some movement. This doesn't have to be going to a gym necessarily, but some type of exercise, whether it's walking, uh, even briskly, some way that your body can, can get out there and move. Dr. Ravella, why do you think medicine in general has been so slow to embrace the idea of a silent fire. That, that is to say, the idea of inflammation as being so important for so many different conditions and actually coming up with strategies to calm that inflammation short of, you know, the heavy-duty medications like corticosteroids or now monoclonal antibodies? I think uh, it's tough on multiple levels because one, you know, we, we are looking at with the idea of hidden inflammation, this idea that all of these seemingly disparate diseases can share a deep biological link. It forces us to look, look at uh, the body, not in parts from a specialty perspective, which, which we should do, but we should also be looking at the body as a whole, the body and the mind, and delving into some of these root causes. And when we delve into the root causes and we think about diet and lifestyle, I think that these types of therapies can sometimes be more difficult to incorporate into clinical practice, into patient visits that are, are getting shorter and shorter with each passing year. And I think that that has been, certainly has been a challenge. And I think also there is the fact that inflammation has been probably too pervasive for too long. I mean, as medical students, we learn about inflammation as a consequence of disease and, and it's, you know, it is, it is omnipresent in so many ways. And for us to be able to actually 
actually say that inflammation can also be a cause of disease, that, that this, this force that is just so pervasive can, can, can be this isolated, independent cause of disease. I think it took us a very long time to be able to say that. And, and that, that's the story I thought was quite fascinating. And it took scientists laboring for decades. Uh, you know, it took uh, their life's work, the life's work of many different scientists in order us to be able to say that inflammation can cause disease. And it's, it's a new story, but it's also a very old one as well. Uh, you know, modern science, what it's telling now is, is, is in some ways corroborating the ideas of 19th century scientists. We finally have this hard evidence that those scientists were seeking in their time. And this idea that inflammation is, is tied to so many chronic diseases of modernity and, uh, and then also this idea that we have the tools now to prevent and to be able to treat it uh, kind of tells us that we are in some ways as patients, as humans, able to take our health into our own hands in part and create massive effects in disease prevention, which is very exciting. Dr. Shilpa Ravella, thank you so very much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you so much for having me today. It was an absolute pleasure. You've been listening to Dr. Shilpa Ravella, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Digestive and Liver Diseases at Columbia University Medical Center. Her book is A Silent Fire, The Story of Inflammation, Diet, and Disease. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wardarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, and B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial, connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at GaiaHerbs.com. Today's show is number 1,325. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments to let us know what you think about today's show. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter and get the latest news about important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you also get regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we're covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. 
We couldn't make our show without you.